Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Peachtree Road Race returns as a two-day event this 4th of July weekend. Well, that's due to COVID-19 precautions. You'll hear more on what to expect and some last-minute tips from Atlanta Track Club Executive Director Rich Kana. Also, Dr. Carlos Del Rio assesses strides on how the United States has been doing so far and to come con- to combat the uh, coronavirus. And he also talks about the Delta variant and why it's so concerning and how the supply chain industry has weathered the pandemic storm. All that's coming up. But first, this through executive order effective today, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is ending the public health state of emergency in response to the pandemic that had been in place for more than a year. Now, however, some provisions remain in place regarding restrictions on medical licensing and vaccination administration. In a statement, Kemp cited, quote, with coronavirus cases, hospitalizations and deaths at an all time low and vaccinations on the rise, Georgians are getting back to normal. These new exec- these new executive orders will enable the state to make that transition as easy as possible for our healthcare infrastructure, our job creators, and the supply chains that rely on and Georgians getting back into the workforce. In other news, new state laws, as you just heard on NPR, take effect today. And that includes new provisions of the controversial changes to Georgia's voting statutes. Now, this includes new identification requirements for absentee voters and changes regarding early voting. Also, the state's longtime and quite vague Civil War era citizens arrest law will be quite different now. As reported by WABE News, this was the law being used by the two white men charged in the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery last year. Arbery, who was black, was chased while jogging down a coastal Georgia street last year. The men claimed that they thought they suspected Arbery of committing a burglary. Now, as a result, their lawyers have cited the state's citizen's arrest law as a justification for their actions. The trial of all the suspects is scheduled for October. But keep in mind, because that original citizen's arrest law was in effect at the time of Arbery's death, they can still use it as a defense. And Georgia's House Committee on Legislation, Legislative and Congressional Reapportionment, or in plain talk, the Committee on Redistricting, took the in-person public hearings to North Georgia Wednesday night. Of course, it was about redrawing the state's election districts. The General Assembly must redraw the districts every 10 years due to population changes. Speakers like Eddie Hall from Gordon County said it was important to keep counties grouped together that share similar interests and specifically for the 14th Congressional District. Our Senate district splits Gordon County. I feel like this diminishes our role. Uh, I you know, we, we have a, not love our neighbors in Floyd County, but we have a lot more in common with our Whitfield County neighbors, the flooring industry, agricultural uh, developments, things of that nature, would make us pair better with them as a whole county and give our whole county more representation if we were partnered with them as a whole other than split in half. And there were also a lot of comments about the lack of messaging and inclusion for Spanish-speaking citizens to be aware of the public hearings. Gainesville resident Elton Garcia presented his comments this way. How is this committee going to have a hearing in Dalton and not have a translator on site, nor provide information in languages other than English? Nosotros merecemos ser parte del proceso. Sean justos y no dibujen sus mapas para dibujar sus votos. If you were not able to understand what I just said, this is the reason why we need language access, because my community heard me, and now you know how excluded they feel. 
Nicole Robinson, speaking on behalf of the ACLU of Georgia, told the committee to consider how diverse Dalton's voting demographic has changed. The black voting age population has grown by about 15 percent. The Asian voting age population has grown by about 25 percent. The Hispanic voting age population has grown by about 23 percent. And the white voting age population has decreased by about 2 percent. And we believe these demographic changes must result in maps that adequately reflect the diversity of the greater Dalton area. The maps that are drawn this year need to take that diversity into account and ensure that voters of color have the same opportunity to elect candidates of their choice as white voters do. Lawmakers are holding nearly a dozen of these public comment meetings all over the state throughout the summer. And finally, it is that time of year as one of the nation's most popular and largest 10K races takes place this 4th of July weekend. Of course, I'm talking about the Peachtree Road Race. And because of what else? Yeah, the pandemic, it's a little different. Returning to Closer Look for some final updates and tips from the organization that puts on the annual race, the Atlanta Track Club, Executive Director Rich Kana. Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Rose. You know, last time you were on, I got a lot of emails and folks were really excited. They had a lot of questions about the canine COVID sniffing creatures. We'll get that in a minute. But first of all, let's begin with the staff and volunteers. How many folks are going to be involved this coming weekend? So, yeah, here's a quick look at our numbers. So so we, we can't put on the peach tree without our volunteer base. So we'll have north of 3,000 volunteers out there uh, helping deliver hopefully what we will uh, call in the future the world's safest 10K. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from a participant perspective, we expect about 13,000 participants out there on Saturday, July 3rd, and then about 17,000 on July 4th. All right, that was my next question. So two days, two separate races. You feel you all prepared for this? We do. We, we've spent many an hour looking at uh, the operational challenges of delivering in a race over two days uh, and the spacing requirements needed to do this, essentially, to deliver on the promise that, that we gave to the city of Atlanta that, that we would uh, go the extra mile, if you will, pun intended, uh, to, to deliver uh, a safe event for all participants and volunteers and everybody involved. So I feel very good about it, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of unknown. And the folks are grouped by times as in the past. That hasn't changed. Uh, that's correct. So so what we, we try to line folks up, sort of the, 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 the faster of foot in the front and, and those who are just looking forward to taking their time down Peachtree toward the back. Uh, but we will have, and maybe this is where you were going, Rose, Rose, we will have more time in between each of the waves okay. and less people in each wave. So, so quite literally, we plan to have 36 square feet at the start line for every participant. The next square is still the start for the race. Are you encouraging participants to arrive a little earlier than normal, as in the past? No, as a matter of fact, quite the contrary. So really? we, we want to avoid having everyone standing at the start line at the same time. So all of our participants have been advised uh, with a window of arrival so that we can get them through our entrance period to uh, play. So uh, that is a significant difference for us from the past where mm-hmm. we have people coming, thousands of people coming from all directions. The only way to get to the start line this year will be at the corner of Peachtree and Wayuka. Uh, and that is where we will allow our vaccinated folks to arrive in one area and our unvaccinated are in another area where, where they will be screened. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because last time on the program you talked about vaccination guidelines for participants. Has anything changed in terms of requiring proof of vaccination? Because I imagine by now, if you are a participant, you have either been okay with saying here I'm vaccinated or you have not, and you've all worked that out. Nothing has changed. And to summarize what we've said in the registration process, we told everyone that if you participate this year, uh, you are going to do one of two things. Show us proof of vaccination or be willing to be screened for COVID. And we're two days through our race number pickup at the Expo. And we very much appreciate the patience that everyone has shown as they have gone through those two lines, the, the proof of vaccination as well as the COVID screening line. And so, Rich, just for clarity, because in a few moments I want to speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, this may make him very happy. You all have done or have by Saturday when the two days begin, you have done pre-screening for COVID-19 before they come to the race? Yes or no? The answer is yes, but it's a little bit more complex than that. So, Mm -hmm. So we will have screened everyone when they pick up their race number. 
but for, th for those who are not vaccinated, they will go through a second screening process when they show up on race morning. And that is you still using the COVID detecting canines? That is correct. How many will you have out there? Uh, we'll have six teams of canines uh, for for the arrival period, both on the 3rd and the 4th. And Rich, this is Atlanta's largest outdoor event to take place while we're all in this pandemic. And I asked you earlier about how you were feeling about this event. Of course, last time we talked, we didn't know anything about this Delta variant of the coronavirus. Uh, did you all consider either changing any guidelines or you, by this point, you all said, look, they're set in place. We're going to go with this. If anything, Rose, we've felt a lot of pressure to loosen our guidelines really? over the last weeks and months. Um, but but we we felt the need, uh, again, to, to hold ourselves to a higher standard um, so that any variance in play uh, did not impact the race, number one. Number two, we promised those who registered that we would follow the screening process. Mm -hmm. And it is my sense that a large number of people registered with the understanding that we were going to keep them safe. So are we are we maybe going a little bit too far in some areas? History will tell. But feel good about the work that we're doing. Well, Rich, and I want to be very clear, if the canines discover that this person possibly has the virus, what happens to that individual? So, and to be clear, the canines uh, identify someone of interest. And so the final arbiter is a test, which we do in private. So we, we would escort you to a private area. And we ask you if you're willing to take a test on site. And, and that is the final arbiter. Uh, and if you uh, do test positive for COVID, uh, we give the option to defer till next year or get a refund. But they can't. But you will not allow them to participate. Is That's that correct. Also, unfortunately, participants will only be allowed in the finish area within Piedmont Park, but uh, participants will receive their shirt and the other goodies, right? Uh, again, for folks who are used to going to Piedmont Park to welcome their family or friends, that is a, that's a no this year. Yes, that's correct. So, so we usually celebrate in, 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 in a large party-type atmosphere mm -hmm. in the meadow in Piedmont Park this year. It's just going to be functional space to get you get it, get you and all of your your best friends who have participated with you hydrated, uh, of course, get you your coveted finisher shirt and your snacks and then move you on your way to your final destination for your Fourth of July celebration. Rich, where will you be and what time will you get up for the first day of the race? This is this is a 10K race for all of the participants, but it's a marathon for me and all of our staff. So so it really starts uh, about 2 a.m. Uh, early Saturday morning, and uh, and we'll get some sleep on Sunday night when it's all done. So I, I start at the start line each day, uh, and then we finish up at the finish line uh, after everyone leaves Lenox and uh, and makes their way down toward Piedmont Park. And finally, Rich, I, I know you weren't expecting this, but what is the proper meal after a 10K race? By the way, I went online and saw your 96, I think, pin relays race. For you, you beat some pretty stiff competition there. <laughs> And you had a little bit of, uh, when you were coming across the finish line, you kind of gave a, a little, you had a little attitude with you. I like that. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, I was young then. I, I had a little attitude back in the day. What's uh, that so, meal? Uh, I, I recommend the first thing you do is you hydrate when you come across the finish line. Uh, and then I presume uh, everyone will will move on to their to their hamburgers and hot dogs or whatever their, their, their normal 4th of July fare is. All right. Rich Kanai, Executive Director of the Atlanta Track Club. The Peachtree Road Race taking place this 4th of July holiday weekend. We want to check back with you to get a sort of a recap of the good, the challenges, and, you know, what you learned. So uh, be prepared to come back and give us a report, okay? I look forward to it. Thanks, Rose. Thanks, Rich. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The goal was one dose of a coronavirus vaccine to 70% of adults by July 4th here in the U.S. The Biden administration, they were hopeful. Now, at the time of this broadcast, about 325 million vaccines have been administered. 
That's about 145 million fully vaccinated, and that's about 47% of the total population fully vaccinated. But the headline of late in coronavirus news is this Delta variant, and that's where we begin and we bring in a familiar expert. You know him, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Distinguished Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease at Emory University School of Medicine and Professor of Global Health and Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. He's everywhere. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, welcome back. It's been some time. It's been some time, Rose. Happy to be with you. Uh, I want to pick back up on the conversation I just had with Rich Kana from the Atlanta Track Club. Atlanta is going to have probably, obviously, the largest public event. Um, you heard what they said in terms of their precautions. Uh, what did you think? That, that should be okay? Anything well, that he said concerns you? Well, let me just start by saying that I have been working with the Atlanta Track Club, and I have been advising them. So it's hard for me to say that they have, they're not okay since I've been involved in their, mm-hmm. in their protocols and their safety protocols. I think, Rose, my, my goal throughout this pandemic has been to really figure out how we can try to have events like this. I've worked with the Atlanta Opera and other organizations. How can we do things safely? I mean, rather than saying yes or no, mm-hmm. we know now enough between testing and other things that I think we can do many things safely, safety and safety and, and could continue to do the events that we enjoy, and especially something like the Petri Road Race, which is outside, I think it's it's a safe way to do it. And I, I'm totally confident of what the protocols are, and I think we're going to have a fun race. And I think also we should note before we really get into the Delta variant, because I want to begin with a bit of confusion regarding messaging. Just this week, the World Health Organization is maintaining as a recommendation that masks still be worn, you know, vaccinated or not, and still maintain distancing guidelines. Now, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Olinsky this week saying it's a decision best made by the local, on the local level. Your thoughts on all of this, Dr. Del Rio? Well, I, I agree with, with my friend, Dr. Walensky. I, I would have to say that, uh, you know, WHO Director Dr. Tedros is speaking to the world. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the Delta variant, there, there are two things happening. Number one, most of the world is still not vaccinated. We in the U.S. have much, a large percent of the population vaccinated, even though we still have a ways to go globally. When I think, for example, I just got off the phone with friends in South Africa, less than 2% of their population is immunized. And many places are using vaccines that are not as effective against the variants. Not all vaccines are created equal. Mm-hmm. And some of the vaccines, particularly the, 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 the kill virus vaccines, such as the Sinovac or the Sinopharm vac- uh, vaccines, which come from China, which are used globally uh, a lot in Latin America. There are you know, many countries that are the most commonly used vaccine. They're not as effective as, 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 for example, the mRNA vaccines against the Delta variant. So again, WHO director is speaking specifically to countries around the world who either don't have vaccination or don't have vaccinations with the vaccines that we have. The vaccines we have, the mRNA vaccines, are very effective. If you have two doses of the vaccine, you're fully vaccinated, you you are okay. You don't have to worry about the Delta variant. And also to put this in perspective, if you look at the, the data, the latest data, worldwide, Dr. Dario, it's only just about 11% of the total worldwide population has been vaccinated. Does that surprise you? Does that number surprise you? Whether it's because of barriers or, or just because of beliefs or what have you, that 11%? Well, it, it, it's... It, it surprises me, but also it upsets me because I, I think we have the capabilities and I think we have the, the capacity to do more globally. Uh, we showed it previously with PEPFAR. We were able to get antiretroviral therapy to millions of people in Africa. We have the the resources. We have the will. Uh, we just need to have you know the, the decision to do it. The G7 recently committed to 2 billion doses uh, globally. Uh, which is great. The U.S. is going to give 500 million of those, so about a quarter of the doses. Mm-hmm. But two billion is is nowhere close to the 11 mil billion that are needed globally. So we need to do a lot more. And as it relates to this Delta variant, and, and as a scientist, Dr. Darrell, you've always educated our audience about infectious diseases, and you told me on this program, look, viruses mutate, variants are to be expected. Right now, we're looking at about. 20 26% of all COVID-19 cases here are of the Delta variant. Do you have any concerns about this variant? I do, Rose, and I, I have concerns for two reasons. Number one, this variant, particularly this variant, is, is sort of 40 to 60% more contagious than the previous variant, the Alpha variant, which itself was about 50% more transmissible than the original variant. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a variant, I mean, if you're going to talk about a a super spreader 
capable variant, this is the one to worry about. And as I said, if you are fully vaccinated, I, I, I wouldn't worry. But if you're not vaccinated, I will be very concerned. And the problem is that we have significant areas of our country, particularly you know, in the Midwest and here in the South, where we have a lot of, of section seg segments of the population not vaccinated. And the data is beginning to show that if you have less than 30% of your population vaccinated in that community, you're going to see outbreaks from the Delta variant. So I'm, I'm worried because we haven't reached that goal of vaccinating more people. That's why I'm worried about the Delta variant. If we created enough immunity protection, we would not have to be worried about it. Are the symptoms different with this variant? What do we know? That's a very good question, Rose. And uh, most Experts believe that the symptoms are pretty similar, but there is some data suggesting that you tend to start more with headaches, sore throat, fever. And, you know, sore throat had not been a symptom of the previous uh, variant. So there may be a little difference there. There's also still a lot of debate whether this is a more, more serious, causes more severe disease. And that's very difficult to tease out. And the reason it's difficult to tease out is because, because the if you got more people infected, you're going to have more people in the hospital. So it may not be that it's more severe. It may just be that more people get sick and therefore mm -hmm. you see more, more hospitalizations and definitely more deaths. And that was my question about which, do we even have enough data to reveal which patient populations might be more at risk for experiencing, uh, experiencing severe complications? We just don't know is what you're saying? Yeah, but we, we do know, we have data from the UK. You know, the UK is about about a month ahead of us in experiencing almost every one of these variants. We've learned from the UK about the Alpha variant and how it behaves. We're learning very rapidly about the Delta variant in the UK. The Delta variant is now the most prevalent variant in the UK. And what we're seeing over there is that particularly uh, that people that are that have been uh, fully immunized, while they may still get infected because the protection is not perfect, mm -hmm. they don't get as sick. But if you happen to have comorbidities or if you happen to have an older age, you're more likely to get sick with this variant than you were with the previous ones. So my my advice is if you are somebody who is, let's say, over 65, if you're obese, if you have diabetes, even if you're fully immunized, I would take some precautions. I would still wear my, mm -hmm. my face mask to go in places where there may be a lot of people, because as I said, it is very, very, it's highly transmissible. Hmm. If, if you just join us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, infectious disease expert. Listen, Dr. Del Rio, there have been reports about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine reportedly not as effective. What can you offer to clear any of this up? Well, the reality, Rose, is is, is we don't know, right? There, the, the data is still not out there. Uh, there's a few studies that are starting to come out, and, and one that I, I saw recently uh, but it still has not been published, suggesting that it is slightly less effective uh, against the uh, against the Delta uh, variant. So uh, my, uh, you know, CDC has not made any recommendations about it. Uh, what to do? Do I get a lot of questions of people? I got the the Johnson and Johnson. Do I need to get another shot mm -hmm. with an mRNA mm -hmm. vaccine uh, to boost my response? And and at this point in time, there's no official recommendation of what to do. Uh, uh, what I'm telling people is if you were vaccinated with the Johnson and Johnson and you're young or you're otherwise healthy, you're 50 year olds, but you're otherwise healthy, you're in great shape, you're running the, the peach street, you don't need to worry. Don't don't worry about it. If you got the J&J &J and you're, you know, 65 or 70 and are obese, hypertension, mm -hmm. have other comorbidities, maybe it's time to talk to your doctor and consider uh, a shot of the of one of the mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna. But again, I'm giving that advice. There's not recommendation for CDC. There's no recommendation mm -hmm. from the FDA to do that. At this point in time, we we simply are saying that all vaccines are equally effective against this variant. And Dr. Delry, I do have an email uh, question here. A listener wants to know, you know, do you advise for uh, my do you advise that my high schooler get the vaccine? They will be attending a public high school for the first time. Um, what's the advice there for from Dr. Del Rio? Well, and again, this I is think, your opinion. We ask that everyone always consult with their. Absolutely. Uh, my opinion would be that if I had a high schooler, which I don't anymore, but if I had a high schooler, I would vaccinate my, my high school kids. I think that the we have heard about the risks of myocarditis, particularly 
in, in boys, particularly in young boys, especially after the second dose of the Pfizer or, or the Moderna vaccine. Uh, I still think that it's that the risk benefit uh, favors vaccination. Uh, now, that's one population, you know, that I may say, you know, why don't you take the uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? And I can tell you that my 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 teenage uh, uh, nephew, who is 18, uh, we had this discussion and he decided to take the Johnson and Johnson vaccine mm-hmm. and I'm totally in favor. So I would get my my high schooler vaccinated and whether it's Johnson and Johnson or, or one of the mRNA vaccines, you know, that's a decision you and your physician and knowing the side effects need to take. But at the end of the day, the answer is yes, get vaccinated. Another listener email is being said, I'd like to hear more about the booster shot. Is it available? How do I know if I need one? It's a good question. Well, let, let, yeah, let's start by saying that at this point in time, as I said, there's absolutely no recommendation or evidence that you're going to need a booster shot. And in fact, there's some recent uh, publications that have come out suggesting that the immunity induced by the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines is actually pretty long lived. And we may not need booster shots unless there's some variant that emerges that totally is resistant to the vaccines. But at this point in time, I was vaccinated back in December, so in early January, so I'm I'm six months out, and I am not planning uh, to take a booster anytime soon because I don't think I need one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, as I said, in the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, or especially globally, for example, in the AstraZeneca vaccine, or some of the of the uh, of the of the Chinese vaccines, I said, for example, uh, the Sinopharm vaccine. Uh, I know Bahrain, for example, is giving a dose of mRNA vaccine to all their population that mm-hmm. received the Sinopharm vaccine as a way to boost them. But but here in the U.S., we're not yet recommending any boosting, and the ACIP CDC has not recommended that we do that. So at this point in time, unless there's some very specific reason, I would say there's no reason to get a boost. And Dr. Del Rio, preparing for this conversation, and I came upon news reports coming out of India the detection of over 40 cases of a new coronavirus variant called Delta Plus. Have you heard anything about this? Or I don't mean to scare people. but <laughs> Well, you know, as, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, Rose, uh, new variants are going to emerge and new variants uh, will be emerging with this coronavirus. This is just this is just what the as long as the virus is transmitting and multiplying, these viruses tend to to mutate, mm-hmm. and as they tend to mutate, then they you know they they produce more variants that are either more transmissible or more resistant to neutralizing activity of antibodies. The Delta Plus variant has an additional mutation called K one four one seven N, and it, there's concerns that this one mutation even makes it more transmissible. But the reality is, uh, research done by colleagues and friends uh, in India, Dr. Gupta, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, has said that that there there really isn't much much of a difference between the delta and the delta uh, plus. As he says, the delta is bad enough; uh, it's pretty transmissible. You know, this is just another another variant. As we begin to wrap up, I remember last year. It seems a little bit longer than that when you were actually the very first guest, and I asked you about how long you thought we might all still be experiencing this pandemic. Uh, what are your thoughts now? I mean, we're all, we're in a pandemic, but it, it's a different type of end game now that the nation and obviously the rest of the world wants to get to. Um, what do you think? We'll still be talking about variants and all this, this time next year, Dr. Del Rio? Well, Rose, I think at this point in time, uh, here in the U.S., it's up to us. We have in the U.S. Uh, a, an oversupply of vaccines, and if we were to get, you know, 70 plus percent of the population vaccinated, like President Biden has said he wants to get one shot to 74 percent of the of the eligible population. I wish he had said full vaccination to 70 percent of the population. But if we get fully vaccinated, 70 percent of the, vac- the population, I think we would be in a, in, a, in a different place. So it's really up to us what happens here in the U.S. Globally, I would say it's a little different story. And I hope that also the U.S. steps up and helps control the global pandemic. Because as long as there's a global pandemic, there's a pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. here in the U.S. The biggest, the, sort of the hot spot to the pan, for the pandemic right now is, in fact, Latin America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's our southern border. That's, uh, you know, so it's in our backyard that we have a, a huge pandemic. And the U.S. has to do more to control the pandemic and to give vaccines to countries like Argentina, Brazil, you know, Colombia, Chile, Mexico. Because if we don't control the pandemics there, we will continue to have a problem here. 
And any concerns regarding now that Georgia's public health state of emergency is pretty much is, is ended, although, to be fair, Governor Brian Kemp is going to keep some provisions in place? Because at this point, this could be just about mindset, you know, Georgians and their mindset regarding the coronavirus. If someone hasn't gotten their vaccine by now, odds are they probably won't. What do you think about all that? Well, uh, I mean, I think I think the governor is is right in the sense that we here in Georgia are not having a major issue right now. If you go down to the county levels, there are some counties that are having issues, but every county that is having issues, the counties that we have low vaccination rate. I think that I would I would, you know, Governor Kemp has done a good job of going out there and get trying to encourage people to get vaccinated. I hope he continues to do that. I also hope that members of Congress continue to do that, come back, talk to their constituencies. I think we need to continue talking to people. I also hope that when the FDA uh, gives final authorization to these vaccines as opposed to an emergency use, we may see an uptick in the people that uptake the vaccine. Uh, I just hope that we can get more people vaccinated because again, if we get more people vaccinated in our state, we will be in much better shape. I would tell you that here in Metro Atlanta, you know, you can look at some some counties and you know, we got 60% of the population immunized in some counties and especially around Metro Atlanta. And that makes the situation in Metro Atlanta very different. You know, I feel a lot safer nowadays uh, walking around and going to restaurants and doing other things that I, you know, I, I went to a restaurant a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't done that last Friday. I hadn't done that, you know, in a year and a half. So I think we're beginning to feel more normalcy here. And as I said, the key to normal is cold vaccines. Mm-hmm. Well, on, on that note, what do we know about, you know, each year prior, obviously prior pre-pandemic, we would tell folks to get the, the flu shot. Is this a situation where a year for, from now where folks have gotten their, their first vaccination, do you think there will be recommendations to get another one or is one enough? You know, those are good questions. We, we still have need the science to tell us that. Uh, those are very good questions. I think the answer that I would give you at this point is I frankly don't know. Uh, but, uh, but I do worry that one more thing that I worry about is, is I tell you the winter will be coming and mm-hmm. I think we're not going to have as much uh, masking and socially distancing and all the things that prevented us from getting, I mean, this past winter, we just didn't see any flu, right? Mm-hmm. So between people getting vaccinated, but also a lot of the things that we did, that made a huge difference. And I just worry that this winter, we will have a combination of flu and COVID circulating, and that's going to make life a little complicated for everybody. Then how important is it on a global level when we talk about the Olympics and what's going to take place that there won't be an outbreak as folks return back to their, their home regions? Any concerns there for you? I, I think it's going to be very important. And I think, you know, they potentially could have the Olympics, but they would really need to do a, a bubble. Uh, as I said, I've worked with the NCAA. I work with other organizations with testing, with uh, with uh, with socially distancing, with with a lot of precautions, you could potentially create a bubble and prevent outbreaks during sports sporting events. But but it really requires, you know, a, a very strategic plan in order to make that to happen. Uh, I have not been involved with what is going on in Japan mm-hmm. uh, as far as what, how the Olympic Committee is planning happening, what's happening over there. Uh, I just hope that it is not the case. I'm more concerned about, you know, honestly, what's happening in in. In Latin America, we have millions of travelers, planes, mm-hmm. full of people coming to Disney and coming to other places and wanting to get out. And I think, again, that travelers continue to be an issue. I support the CDC requiring incoming travelers from international sites getting an, a COVID test before they come into the country. I think that gives you some degree of assurance that at least you will detect some people infected and will not let them get on a plane. But at this point in time, the um, you know, the pandemic's still raging globally, and I think we need to be aware of that. And my concern is that, you know, we're beginning to, in the U.S., is beginning to feel like this is not an issue anymore. And I mm-hmm. remind people that it may not be an issue for you, but if you were anywhere else in the world, you would be shocked about what a significant issue it still is. Yeah, we should remind folks, too, to my knowledge, Canada still has not opened their borders yet, if I, if, you know, if I stand corrected. But I think that that's an issue that for is them. Correct. Yeah. That, Dr. that is correct. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease at Emory University School of Medicine and professor of global health and epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. As always, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thank you for the information. Our listeners certainly appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation, Rose.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Rose Scott, if you didn't know that. And this is Closer Look. By definition, supply chain is defined as, quote, the entire process of making and selling commercial goods, including every stage from the supply of materials and the manufacture of the goods through to their distribution and sale, close quote. That's actually from Supply Chain, the online industry magazine. So what happens when the global supply chain is disrupted by, oh, let's say a pandemic? Well, we've had more than a year to find out. And joining me now to dissect and and assess all of this is John Haber. He's the founder and CEO of Atlanta-based Spin Management Experts and has over 25 years of supply chain experience. John, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. I think you are one of our first Closer Look guests in studio. You feel safe? You're good? We're at a safe distance? I feel very safe, and it's really great to see you. You know, it's been Been, a long time. It's been too long. I know. It's been a long time. You know, I think the last time you were here, we were talking about tariffs and the China trade war and how that would impact the supply chain. Now reports are about the pandemic. But take a listen to this. I, I read that... This pandemic has disrupted 78% of the supply chains more than any other event in the last decade. How much truth is in that? It's entirely true. Yeah. It's the supply chain is mayhem right now. Mayhem. Mayhem. Just like the Allstate commercial. (laughs) (laughs) And you heard all the conversations coming into this segment about obviously how the pandemic has, and you've been listening to this program and how the pandemic has, has disrupted every aspect of our life. For those not familiar with spend management experts, what you all do, I'm imagining the pandemic has interrupted what you all do, and especially for your clients. Uh, it's it's interrupted, but it has uh, really uh, heightened the importance of what we do uh, because the supply chain has been really keeping the flow of goods and commerce uh, alive. And that's been critical during the pandemic, whether it's getting the, 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 uh, the vaccine uh distribution uh, out to people so they can get vaccinated. But uh, shippers and e-commerce have really been driving the supply chain and getting goods to households when brick and mortar shut down. So the supply chain has been so important. So on the shipping end, that's the good. On the bad and ugly, it's been the brick and mortar. Um, Speaking of your clients, uh, and I'm imagining domestic and global here, but has it been mostly the brick and mortar, those who have had the issues? Uh, brick and mortar in particular has been impacted probably the most, but the impacts have been across really all industries. You've seen a huge shift to residential delivery from commercial delivery. That's much more costly. It's much more time consuming, and it takes a different supply chain and inventory model. Uh, so companies have had to adapt very quickly to the change because of the pandemic. Let's focus uh, for a moment on the global aspect here, because as you heard Dr. Carlos Del Rio talk about how the pandemic is its impact in certain nations around the world, as in the U.S., we may have a different sort of approach now. But because of what may be happening in, in some of the African nations or, or, you know, in the Latin nations, how is this globally? What are you seeing? What's the trend here? There are tremendous bottlenecks in the supply chain globally. Uh, there's an imbalance of uh, supply and demand. There just are not enough uh, assets available right now. There's not enough infrastructure. There's not enough capacity to meet the demand. And as a result, uh, the ports are very clogged. Mm. You saw what happened in L.A. with uh, large steamships just parked in the port for weeks at a time waiting to offload goods. Uh, is that just because of the concerns about the virus or is it just because you the, the, the companies are shut down, they don't have the personnel to transport it? What's the reason? The, the demand for goods has escalated tremendously during the pandemic. People are spending money on goods rather than on services and travel. And, you know, with the stimulus, uh, the NRF, the National Retail F- uh, Federation, mm-hmm just increased their retail sales projections on June 9th from 6.5% growth. They're now forecasting 11 to 13% growth for 2021. Those are massive growth numbers for retail. Well, we know online sales then have been a bonanza then obviously based on what you said. And obviously 
The big A comes to mind, Amazon. But recently we saw Walmart and Target. They sort of took some steps. They announced sales to compete with Amazon during their recent. They have this Prime Day thing on, on in here in, in last June. Are we going to see more companies do that then and say, look, you know what? Since the online sales is going, it's what's you know moving and 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 spurring this whole a supply chain. Then are we going to see more companies pushing for online, online? But then you just told me there's a backlog, so. Is it going to take me eight months to get a pair of shoes? Uh, probably not a pair of shoes, but possibly different types of furniture. Uh, you may be looking at an eight-month Well, I get backlog. my furniture from the thrift store, so <laughs> that, that's okay with me. <laughs> if it's being manufactured in Asia uh, and you're just placing an order for it right now, you're looking at five to six-month delays on furniture in particular. Five to six months? I know. It's crazy. See, all y'all should do like me. Go to the thrift store and, <laughs> or go to a yard sale. Um, how have you all, it's it, within your company, how have you all managed throughout all this since last year? Uh, I've been working in the office alone quite a bit, but we uh, adapted very quickly because our, our team's used to working remotely. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a huge change for us other than the social interaction of being together. Uh, at first, uh, we were, you know, we were panicked because our when things shut down, our customers stopped shipping, and mm-hmm. so uh, we were extremely nervous that it was if that extended for a long period of time, you know, how was our business going to survive? And then as brick and mortar shut down, people started moving towards e-commerce, and luckily mm-hmm. we work with retail as our biggest client base, and the the increases in e-commerce volumes, we're talking four five hundred percent increases year over year for some of our e-commerce customers and so uh, the profile changed Mm -hmm. the deliveries became residential rather than commercial uh, but their volumes started picking up their shipping volumes uh, many of them have increased drastically so the demand for our services uh, it has that's been a positive impact as negative as, as an impact for as the pandemic was it's been good for our business let's stick with that for a moment in terms of delivery and shipping because as a friend of mine pointed out these little bots that I guess Amazon or Prime is using. Are we going to start seeing some more in, innovative ways to give people their products? I'm not anti, people think, already think I'm anti-scooter, which I'm not. And I'm not anti-bots or whatever they are, but when you see enough of them coming down the street, it can look a little scary. Are we going to see more innovative ways to, to get folks to, in terms of their, their products and how we deliver them? You absolutely will see more innovative ways for people to get products, more automation, more efficiency, I'm like you. I, a world uh, of robots walking <laughs> down the street delivering packages is, makes me a little nervous. Even uh, a truck going down the road with nobody driving it yeah. makes me nervous. But uh, that's the future. Uh, you won't see it you know, on a wide-scale basis here in the next year, but it will be coming over the next five to ten years. But seriously, because that, that does lend to the next question, which is about the workforce in the supply chain industry and how they've been doing it. Some folks had obviously layoffs, but what can you tell me about the workforce during this pandemic? Is it starting to rebound a little bit? Are we starting to see more hiring and more opportunities? Uh, within the logistics workforce, the logistics workforce was so instrumental uh, to keeping commerce running. Uh, we can't hire enough workers in the workforce. The problem is not, uh, is not layoffs. The problem is hiring enough people. We hmm. simply cannot hire enough drivers. You can't hire enough warehouse workers. Uh, we're running out of warehouse space capacity we're at full capacity and hiring is a major problem in the logistics sector well we know that amazon is continuing to expand its presence i believe they're going to have some development on the city's west side i think ups is planning to hire more folks so that's good news but how do you see this will it take time for the supply chain industry to fully rebound overall or is it on the way you're going, to cons- you're going to see continued problems in the supply chain for the rest of the year and into 2022. You just can't fix these issues overnight. We'll see an improvement in hiring, I think, when some of the federal stimulus money mm-hmm. runs out. Uh, because right now, uh, 
people, you know, have access to money, you know, in some cases and well, are not some working. Folks just don't, may, they may not want to go back to that old job if they realize it also, too, because what I just talked about with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, there are these variants. So you can understand folks maybe not. Maybe they don't, it's not that they don't want to work, but they're like, let me find something else. And maybe they don't they they want a job that doesn't put them around a whole bunch of people. Now, a warehouse puts you around a whole bunch of folks. Absolutely. And if you don't want to be around people, then the warehouse is not the, it's not going to be the place for you. And there are a lot of companies are moving to a much more flexible workplace environment, with the, which is a remote work environment. And those jobs are very attractive. It's even hard for us to uh, hire uh, people in very skilled analyst positions, sales positions. Well, somebody just sent me their resume. I guess I should give it to you after the show because it literally just popped up. Said, I'd, I'd love to see it. I've got a lot of open positions that I'm trying to hire I love for. the fact that folks just send me their, you know what, send me your resume. If you're interested in the supply chain or shipping, John Haber's here. Hey, it's great networking. <laughs> are you hiring? Are you seriously hiring? We, are, we have a lot of open positions. We're what, hiring a, a lot. We need a lot of people. But you know what? Let's just get into it. What you looking for, John? Now, uh, I am not guaranteeing listeners you get a job. I'm just, just listen. We're looking for financial analysts. We're looking for salespeople. We're looking for client services people. We're looking for IT people. IT people are in great demand. It's very yeah. hard, hard to find good IT people because they're in such demand these days. Really, across all different job categories, we're looking to hire people. Oh my goodness, I got another resume. Well, that's good. That's good to know. Um, as we begin to wrap up, and again, you heard in the conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio about the new Delta variant, and we know what's happening in certain nations in India and, and Brazil, and of course in the African nations. If those those areas where the outbreak is, is still, even not necessarily high, but you still have a low vaccination rate of people. And we also know the, the goods and products we love to get from, from Africa, and we love to get from Brazil and, and, and these other areas in India. If they don't get that under control, how might that also still impact the, the, the supply chain here? It's a major concern. I mean, if you have to shut down manufacturing facilities because people are not getting vaccinated, uh, that stops the production of goods. We're already suffering from shortages of raw materials and commodities in a number of areas. Semiconductors has mm -hmm. been a huge problem. The major U.S. auto manufacturers have had to shut down manufacturing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because we can't get enough semiconductor chips. And so uh, it has a major impact on the global supply chain and the global economy if we don't get the, uh, the virus under control, especially in underdeveloped nations. And then here in North America, when we talk about our, our, our neighbors uh, in Canada and obviously in Mexico, too, in Canada, they have not opened their borders, as I mentioned earlier, because of the coronavirus. What is North America's situation going to look like? Just the same as it will globally, as you just talked about? Uh, obviously, uh, North, the U.S. has opened uh, more so than a lot of other places, but it's very unpredictable. Uh, we don't know, you know how these different variants are going to impact things moving forward. And so we're moving forward very cautiously. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not over the hill yet. Hmm. What are you paying attention to and let's say through this next quarter of the year in terms of what kind of projection we'll get for the remainder of the year? What are you going to be paying attention to in this industry? Uh, paying very, very close attention to capacity uh, within uh, the UPS and FedEx world. Uh, the, some of the regional providers are already at capacity. They are not taking on new customers already for the rest of 2021. So the peak Ooh. season holiday, if you're buying goods for the holiday, you need to ship early this year more than ever before. So those that wanted to get their favorite public radio host a gift, they need to start looking for it now. And <laughs> Sooner the better. Don't wait till December to, 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 to buy online. <laughs> John Haber, founder and CEO of Atlanta-based Spin Management Experts. And we've been talking about how the global and domestic supply chain industry has it been faring throughout this pandemic. As always, John, thank you so much for coming in. Good good conversation. I, I do have two resumes to pass on to you, so I'm not guaranteeing anything. I'm just saying good luck. I'm looking forward to see him, seeing them. It's always great to be here, Rose. Thanks for having me. Is there a finder's fee for me if you do hire these people? Absolutely. Like a headhunter. Absolutely. Like it's already negotiating. You're just like me, Rose. <laughs> 
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Also, best of luck to all the participants in the Peachtree Road Race this weekend. Make sure, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.